Welcome to For Your Listening Pleasure, a podcast that dives deep into important topics and fosters understanding by exploring captivating interviews with diverse guests, where we discuss how their unique experiences have shaped them into the individuals they are today. This podcast is committed to having honest and thought-provoking conversations to arouse curiosity and convey essential messages of empathy, inclusion, and diversity, one conversation at a time. I am your host, Mallory Waxman. Today on the podcast, I'm honored to be welcoming Kelly Campbell. Kelly is a trauma-informed leadership coach and conscious leadership consultant, guiding self-aware visionaries at the intersection of trauma, leadership, and consciousness. As the founder of Consciousness Leaders and the author of Heal to Lead, Revolutionizing Leadership Through Trauma Healing, Kelly empowers individuals to harness their innate leadership power by transforming past trauma. They are also the founder of Consciousness Leaders, a diverse and equitable speakers collective fostering transformative change. This episode marks the first of two with Kelly, and I'm excited for the inspiring conversation ahead. Join us as we dive into their groundbreaking work and insights. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and make sure you check out the links in this episode's show notes for you to learn more about Kelly and pre-order their upcoming book, Heal to Lead. Kelly, thank you so much for joining me today. I am very excited to talk with you, and I'm even more fortunate to say this is the first of two recordings we are going to do. The second one is going to come before your book launches, and we'll dive into what that book is and why you wrote it at the end of this episode. But one thing that I found so fascinating, meeting you first back in New York at the Fairway Dinners. And then also just learning more about you preparing for this conversation was your journey has been very transformative, but also has impacted you in a way that had you take certain steps along the way to get where you are now, both good things and bad things, I would say. But would you mind just kind of level setting and talking to our listeners about your journey and especially what did you do at 22 that was so unheard of? that I don't think a lot of us would have had that confidence to do. Well, thank you for having me on the show, Mallory. I'm really excited. Um, and I've been excited about this conversation since we met. Um, you know, it's a lot. It's a long journey. I am 43. So going all the way back 20 years and just kind of talking about that. Um, I was pretty clear that I wanted to be in graphic design or something like that, something creative. I don't think I ever really thought from a young age that I would own my own creative agency or, you know, uh, web development agency. But, you know, my first entrance into corporate America was not great. Um, It was, I was on the receiving end of like a lot of misogyny, a lot of discrimination. Um, You know, I was young, so I kind of had to, I was you know, inadvertently taught that I had to kind of like pay my dues and and all of these things. And I was like, but I'm performing really, really well. So what does my gender or my age or any of that have to do with it? And so I was very naive because I didn't understand how that corporate landscape worked. They don't really teach you that in college. And so after a couple of years, um, you know, you know, really, yeah, about a year and a half to two years into that initial corporate job, I was just flooded with so much sort of negative experience that I was like, you know, this can't be this hard. Like I could probably do this better myself. Right. So I had that little bravado and that little courage. And, you know, I was like 
riding my motorcycle to work, listening to Ani DeFranco, and they just did not know what to do with me. <laughs> so, um, and I, I think it was just, um, I was fairly comfortable with risk. And I was like, you know, uh, let me just do this. So I started building up while I was still working. I started building up a client base. Uh, literally, I'm dating myself, but I was literally calling people out of the phone book in my local area, business owners, um, retail shops, um, you know, people like that. And just saying like, hey, do you have a website? Hey, do you, this was back in like 2002, 2003. So, you know, many people either didn't have a website or it was super outdated. It was a one page basic thing. They were not doing email marketing, digital marketing. I don't even think was a, a term at that point. Maybe it was, I don't know. But that's how I sort of built up this client base. And um, over the course of my career, I made a ton of mistakes. Uh, again, because you're not taught how to run a business or you're not taught how your past trauma shows up in your leadership style or why you behave or make certain decisions based on things like that from your past. So I didn't know any of this. So I made tons of mistakes. I made all the mistakes you could make. Um, and I sort of say that I groped my way through it. And, you know, I did learn a tremendous amount. I also started a second company um, about four years into owning my digital marketing agency, which, you know, people can argue back and forth whether that was a smart decision or not. Um, my business at that point did not run without me. So it wasn't actually a great, you know, idea. But for me, I've come to understand in retrospect that both of those businesses were not necessarily born out of like a deep passion so much as they were born out of my desire to prove myself to me, to my mother, to the world. Like I matter, I'm valuable, I'm worth something. And so um, how I got from there at 22 to here at 43 was, um, you know, just like any kind of trauma healing or integration, it's not a linear path. You know, it's not steps or phases. It's, you know, I followed the breadcrumbs and I was met with a lot of adversity and then I figured things out. And then, you know, it's like an onion, you're just unpeeling and unpacking. And so, you know, it went from owning a business, scaling that over the course of 14 years, selling that in 2016, essentially having a, a dark night of the soul or a spiritual awakening, if you will, not really knowing what I was going to do, probably going through some form of depression, feeling unemployable as a 36 year old CEO, like who the heck's going to hire me? I have all these skills and everything, but you know, there's a, there's a, it's interesting when people in the corporate landscape think about hiring a former CEO. Um, so that kind of led to consulting and consulting led to coaching and coaching. You know, when I started getting a little bit more momentum in terms of what was the content or the focus of that work, it was really this discovery um, or realization of childhood trauma correlating to, you know, current leadership style. And um, that was really, that became the focus of my work. And that's all I do now. And I'm so grateful that that was the path that I took. So your story resonates with me so intensely because 
I'm in marketing. I'm 33. And I always just kept saying, I'm fine. I'm fine. I can handle anything. I, you know, calmness is my superpower, but I've kind of gotten to the point where I need to heal my like childhood trauma. And what does that look like? Because one thing as I've talked to so many guests and I'm learning myself, trauma is that little shadow that starts off small and you can keep ignoring it. But as you continue to progress in your life, that shadow starts to get bigger and bigger until you start to feel the light kind of moving out of your way because it's taking over. And when you talk about trauma, it definitely shows up into leadership styles. And we're going to talk about that. But I've heard you talk about the difference between big T trauma and small T trauma. Can you explain that a little to listeners and then how it starts to show up in your life, both aspects? Yeah, absolutely. So um, let's level set that, you know, there, there is a reality to, you know, when some people say I had a perfect childhood, I don't think I suffered from any trauma or I wasn't on the receiving end of any trauma. Every single one of us has experienced trauma. So let's just accept that and kind of move on so we can have an actual conversation, right? Um, It may look different for different people. And so they say about 70%, according to um, the ACEs study, uh, adverse childhood experiences, about 70% of us have experienced a big T trauma. And that could be going through um, a divorce, having, you know, as a child, um, having your parents go through a divorce being on the receiving end of abuse, whether that's physical or sexual, um, having a parent who is incarcerated, being uh, living in a war-torn country, you know, things that are of that gravity. Um, small T trauma is no less impactful. It's just that those are sort of the, let's call them micro, but compounding things that happen over and over and over again. So they they may show up very differently. They impact us maybe in slightly different ways, but it's very individualistic, right? So you and I could have grown up in the exact same household and had the exact same parents and seemingly the same experience, but our trauma, what, how we experience the world, not the events, but how we experience those events would look very different, right? Because our compositions are different. We have different personalities. So, I think it's important to understand that it's, this isn't a comparison. It's not like, oh, well, you only had small T trauma and, but I had big T trauma. So mine's worse. This isn't about comparison because it's not about the events. I think that's the thing I would drive home. It's about the experience. What, what happens inside of you? This is how Dr. Gabor Mate talks about it. Trauma is what happens inside of you as a result of the event or experience that, you know, you've gone through. So it's not the event or experience itself. It's how you're sort of interpreting that and how you're experiencing that. When I heard you talk about that on a different podcast, it made so many different things click in my head because you think that big T trauma would be so impactful, but that small T trauma is like compounded, like you mentioned. And what came to mind for me is when I was young, I mean, girls are horrible, like middle school girls. I don't know what happens during those years, but they're horrific. And I had a lot of bullying, cyberbullying, all of that. And when you mentioned that in another podcast, that's what popped into my head. I haven't thought about how I felt as a 12-year-old girl in years, 
But that I was like, huh, I always wanted to like be included or be chosen. And then I started to really think, well, it's probably why I'm a little bit of a people pleaser. That's probably why I bend over backwards for people and keep giving. And so it was really interesting when you mentioned that. I was like, I feel this is topic that I really want to talk about because so many people don't realize how those small little things over a vast amount of time add up. And when you're ignoring it, it's a problem. Um, you said you mentioned you started your agency at 22, but by 36, you weren't happy. You were like, I am currently kind of working through, I put a lot of my self-worth in my job, in my career. I want to show that how smart and capable I know I'm creative. I want to help clients, but you are on that hamster wheel. And finally you're like, I'm not happy. Can you talk about what made you come to that realization and you sold your company, but then you were just kind of like, now what? Yeah. I'm happy to talk about that. I do want to circle back to what you said, just to kind of close the loop there, because it's such a through line. When I hear these stories with coaching clients over and over again, it's very easy for me because of the, you know, being a trauma informed leadership coach, it's easy for me to see these through lines. So what you just said, right, this happened at 12, probably over a prolonged period of time being on the receiving end of bullying and not feeling like you um, mattered or, you know, you weren't being included from, you know, in those formative years, the first 14 years of our lives, some say even up to 21, uh, we're getting more and more information and research about this, um, like literally as we speak, but let's say it's the first 14 years, right? Really, really formative. All you wanted was, especially with a peer group was to feel a sense of belonging, right? And so, because you didn't get that from them, you were afraid that you would never feel a sense of belonging in your life, right? And that's such a core need. And so the people pleasing aspect as, you know, whether it's an employee or a business owner or a leader, that people pleasing aspect shows up because you don't ever want to feel your ego never wants to feel that way. Right. So, of course, you're people pleasing. Of course, you're going out of your way to make sure that you feel that sense of connection and belonging and inclusion um, because it's self protecting of your ego. Right. And so, what, and that's a beautifully designed strategy that our, our brains and our bodies and, and, you know, we, our nervous systems, all these things kind of come together and they do design these coping mechanisms or these survival strategies, we call them. And so it's great because it gets you up to this point. And then the irony is that the thing that got you up to this point is now, once you come to this realization, it's the thing that holds you back from the rest of your life and living the way that you actually desire to live, which is a little bit more liberated and not so people pleasing. And so I just wanted to encapsulate that because it's such a perfect example. And I really appreciate your you know, vulnerability in sharing that. Um, so yeah, my lack of happiness. I don't even know now if I would use that word because I think happiness is different for everyone, but I'll say my lack of fulfillment and even like comfort in my own skin was not there <laughs> at all. And again, now back to what I said earlier at the top of the show, I have come to realize that the business was never going to give me that. The business was an external representation of what I was trying to get I was trying to fill a void 
that was there from childhood. I was trying to fill that void with a business. A business can never fill that void for you. You have to fill that void for you through doing trauma healing and integration work. I didn't know any of that at 36. I just knew that I couldn't keep going the way that I was going. I had a great team. We had great clients. We were successful. I should not have been complaining about anything. I should not have been feeling badly about anything, but I was, and I couldn't ignore that anymore. You know, you can push it down and repress it and suppress it and do all the things to distract yourself, overworking, numbing with alcohol, you name it. There's lots and lots of addictions and ways that we distract ourselves from our own, you know, work that we have to do. But I couldn't do that anymore because it was, it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And the more I tried to push it down, the more it was kind of buoyant, buoyant in terms of coming back up. And so it was impacting my marriage. Um, It was impacting me physically Um, over the course of the 14 years I had put on 40 pounds because that's another means of like protection. Right. Um, So there were just, there was just so much in my life that felt so uncomfortable. I'll say it like that versus unhappy. And finally I was like, you know what? I don't know if I even want to do this anymore. And, you know, I put that out there and I ended up getting a couple of different offers to buy the business. And so I ended up selling to an IT services firm. And then I was very clear that I didn't want to work for that company in any capacity. So you know, there was a non-compete. So I couldn't work with any of my former clients. I couldn't start another agency. I couldn't join another agency in a partnership role. I was like, great, what am I going to do now? You know? And so it took me a solid six months to kind of like pull myself back up because I, yeah, I, um, I hit rock bottom. I'll say it like that, which is ironic because you think, it's really, really hard to start a business from scratch. I literally had $250 in my bank account when I started my business. $250. I was 22. Who has money at 22? And a laptop. And then I got to the point over that 14 years where I was able to build something. I employed a lot of people. We had great clients, recognizable names as clients. I was very proud of it, but even that pride wasn't enough, right? So Um, yeah, I hit rock bottom after that. And I should have been going to Disney after selling the agency, but that was not where I was at. So, yeah. So let's talk about healing. There's different healing styles for different folks and some healing styles work for others while others maybe don't. I think the first thing when people hear about healing, it's therapy, talk therapy. As someone who has done talk therapy for eight years, love it. It was helpful. It's like dipping your toe in, right? Now I'm at the point where I feel like therapy is just me complaining more versus like actionable steps. So actually I've been very fortunate enough to start working with a coach, Hillary Hitner, who I met at the fairway dinner. And it has been, we've done a few sessions and after the first session, light bulbs start to go off in my head. And I know you're a coach too, but what I would love for you to talk about is when you hit that rock bottom and you started seeing and realizing you need to heal, what did you start doing? And I know you also do shadow work, which I'm fascinated by and would love for you to talk about that too, because I don't think a lot of listeners know about it, or maybe they've heard the term, but don't know what that entails. Yeah. So I'll start out by saying that trauma healing and integration um, is a nonlinear path. So it doesn't look the same for any two people. 
Um, there is no one right way or wrong way to engage in these modalities. There's a tremendous amount out there and available. Um, and in the book, I actually created something called the healing menu. So what I'm doing is sort of categorizing all of, you know, not an exhaustive list, but a, a tremendous amount of different types of modalities and therapies and um, ways of healing and integrating your trauma. But I'm sort of categorizing them in like from the standpoint of like a restaurant menu. So appetizers, shared plates, entrees, and desserts. And there's a reason for that because so many people ask kind of what you're asking, you know, Hey, I, I have been going to therapy, but I'm finding that I'm like hitting some kind of wall where I'm just talking about the same things over and over again. And even in the book, I do talk about the fact that I'm actually a big proponent of CBT uh, cognitive behavioral therapy or talk therapy. I just believe that it is sort of, uh, I jokingly say it's like the gateway drug, right? It's a great entrance. It's a gentle on-ramp talking with someone about what happened to you or how you grew up or what you're struggling with now is wonderful because you're saying it out loud to another person who is a qualified professional. However, this is my caveat. Um, there comes a point where you do hit that wall. Everyone will hit that wall because talking about something is cerebral, right? Or thinking and, and talking. We are not getting the trauma that's in our body out of our body. There's no somatic component to talk therapy. Um, and Dr. Nicole LaPera gotten sort of a lot of um, hot water with other psychologists and psychotherapists because of, you know, the way that she talked about how, you know, therapy, talk therapy is not going to get you to the place of trauma healing and integration. Um, I think that people have kind of calmed down about that now because it makes a lot of sense, right? We hear, you know, the body keeps the score by Bessel van der Kolk. You know, there's so much knowledge and wisdom in this idea that of course we store trauma in our body. Of course it would need to be released, right? And we do that through lots and lots of different uh, modalities or tools, so what I did, um, and I, going back to um, talk therapy, I actually started therapy when I was 16 years old. So I had been doing therapy for all of that time, right? So 16 to 36, literally two decades worth of therapy. And I was like, that's when I hit rock bottom. So clearly therapy did a decent job in getting me to talk about things, but it was never going to be the thing that got me beyond that, right? Um, the other thing about talk therapy is for some people who have experienced um, either big T or small T trauma, talking about things over and over and over again can actually be re-traumatizing. So you're in a repetitive loop. So that's why you feel like, oh, you know, I'm just complaining about this thing. Or every time I talk to my therapist, this through line, something, maybe if it was a big T trauma, this through line keeps coming up and I have to re- go through the motions and the feelings of what happened when I was younger, when this traumatic thing happened, and it actually keeps you in a repetitive loop. So that's the encapsulation of why, uh, how I feel about and how I look at talk therapy. Yes, do it as a starting point. You're not going to do it forever. You can't do it forever. What I did, you know, after this sort of um, the realization and awakening was I started looking at different things, different modalities. I did everything from 
craniosacral therapy to energy work, Reiki, um, anything that I could sort of pull or, or not even pull, I would say it was sort of this, I was following breadcrumbs, right? I was following the breadcrumbs of like, oh, I heard about this new thing. What is that about? What is that like? I would talk to people who had done it and then schedule an appointment and try it for myself. If I liked it, I would keep going. If I was like, that was fine for one time, I'm going to try something else. Um, I will say that all of those modalities and tools compound on each other. You learn a little bit more about yourself and it's like, like the onion, right? You just keep peeling back layer after layer. And so when I discovered shadow work, it was at the same time that I was um, uh, introduced to someone who did contemplative science and Buddhist psychology. And I was like, which one of these two practitioners am I going to work with? And then it dawned on me one day, I was like, why do I feel like I have to choose between them? I'm actually, I have the funds and the means to like work with both of them. So I ended up doing shadow work with Fidesh Ramsey, and I ended up doing Buddhist psychology work and contemplative science work with Anahita Mogado. Um, and the combination of those two things for me was really kind of what, what broke me open in ways that other modalities hadn't quite done. Um, so shadow work, just in a quick definition, is inner child trauma, inner child healing um, is, I guess, the best way to, to say it. It's like reparenting the small version or the young version of you that didn't get their basic needs met. Um, and so you're going in and sort of healing those things or, or reliving those experiences from a different lens. You're not reliving them as your, your wounded child with all of these needs. You're reliving them as your adult self who actually understands what the reality of the situation was like why mom couldn't do this or why dad did this. It wasn't about you. It was about their, um, ineptitude or their wounding or, you know, whatever the case may be, they did the best they could for the most part. That's not the case for everyone, but, um, you see it through a different lens and then you get to give, you know, energetically and, and in your mind's eye, you get to give the little version of you exactly what you needed. Right. And so that's very healing. And if that sounds a little woo woo, like at this point, I don't even care because it works. <laughs> so it's interesting when you're talking about that, I don't know if you've seen the movie, The Time Traveler's Wife. The HBO show sucked, but the movie was phenomenal. And there's a scene where, because he's a time traveler, he goes back to his younger self because his younger self is freaking out, just saw his mom get killed in a car accident. And the older version of him puts a blanket around his younger self and says, it's going to be okay. You're going to get through this. Don't freak out. You're going to be okay. You know, I am you. However many years later, like you're going to be okay. And when you're, when you were just talking about that, that image in that movie came to mind because that's kind of what you're doing. You're going back and really figuring out what was either a small T or, or big T like trauma, but you're talking yourself through that. And one way I've been doing that is journaling. I'll pick an age, I'll say third grade, and I'll write down like what I remember, which then starts to trigger how was I feeling? What was going on? And then I like write through and like talk to myself because like you said, and I read that book, the body keeps the score with trauma, getting it out is so therapeutic in a way you, you would never yeah. guess 
Yeah. So writing it is great. And then what I would also do on top of that is some kind of somatic practice. It could literally be holotropic breath work. It could be going for a walk or a run. It doesn't have to be anything, you know, um, that you need to pay someone else for or rely on an external person. Although there are lots of, you know, modalities where that's really helpful as well, but just getting it out of your body, right? So the writing is great. The talking is great, but the, the movement, movement, the somatic movement is where it's at because you can sort of rationally think about something or reframe something for yourself. You can put the blanket around your younger self and that will definitely soothe but getting those feelings out of your physical body is also a really important component. So one healing exercise or one healing method that you did that I'm fascinated by and have openly told people I want to do is ayahuasca. I think my interest around that started, I hate to say on TikTok, well, actually more with Goop when they took a group to do it. But then you start to see these individuals on TikTok that talk about this was their trauma. And then they went to do this and what their experience was. And I know that experience for you was life-changing. Would you mind sharing what that was like for you? Yeah. um, So, you know, around the time when I sold the agency at 36, I started working with this kind of spiritual guru for lack of a better word, although I don't, I don't use that word um, anymore. But this person who talked about and thought about and trained in these like very different realms from anything I had ever kind of experienced before. It was like spirituality and consciousness. And I was like, what is all of this about? You know, now it's like my whole world. But back then it was just this like different vocabulary and, and there was an element of trauma healing and and all of these things and gifts and spiritual gifts. And, and I remember being in one of those workshops uh, with her and the, the entire cohort that I was with. And someone came in, it was like a visitor to the group and was talking about ayahuasca. They had just done this plant medicine in, you know, Costa Rica or Colombia. I don't remember where it was, but this guy, this young, young guy, he was in his twenties talking about ayahuasca. And so when he left the, the teacher basically said, so ayahuasca, and this was her opinion, but I was listening to her at the time. She said, ayahuasca is for people who don't want to do the work. They just want to sort of take this magic bullet or this shortcut, and they want to bypass doing all the real deep work. And so my thought process at that time was, I'm never going to do ayahuasca right? I'm, I'm here to do the work. I want to do it in integrity. I want to do it the right way. I'm here for the long haul. I'm committed. So I'm never going to do ayahuasca. But the interesting thing was that that was always kind of in the back of my head, right? Like, well, that was her opinion. I don't actually know, you know, and I've never heard of it before. And I never heard of anyone else who did it. So over the course of, you know, seven years after that, I would hear people talk about, you know, um, different plant medicines that they were doing peyote or this or that. And I was like, huh, I've never done a psychedelic, right? I was a type a CEO control freak, a psychedelic, like even and experiences with some pot or hash, like have made me feel a little paranoid. So I was like, I, if I can't do that, I definitely cannot engage in psychedelics. Um, I don't want to feel like I can't get out of it. Right. So that was my own control mechanism. But 
you know, ayahuasca calls you. And if the, if the plant calls you, you answer the call. And I didn't realize that, you know, the reasons why it was popping up in my life and people were starting to share their stories and I would hear about it more and more. I started researching it. And of course, you know what happens when you research anything these days, you get ads and you get this. So it just, it flooded sort of my world and I still had the resistance. And then I remember um, watching uh, Chef's Table on Netflix and it was um, this Peruvian young chef who had this amazing restaurant called Central in Lima, Peru. And I was like, you know what? This is what I wanna do. I wanna go to Peru to eat at this restaurant. This is like, you know, I'm in a place in my life where I can like do something like that. And it didn't seem possible for me, you know, 10 years prior to that. So I, was, I committed, I'm going to write a list of all the restaurants that I want to go to all around the world. I'm a foodie. Um, I love the artistry and the creativity of what he was doing. And I'd never been to Peru before. So that was on a Friday, Monday morning, I get an email from um, a ayahuasca re- retreat company that um, they were opening up and I must've been on their list like a couple of years prior to that. Um, they had only done retreats in Costa Rica before this, but now they were opening up a brand new place in Peru. So I was like, huh, Peru. Interesting. So I look at into it. I'm like, how much is this anyway? I look into it and I'm like, okay, I had had enough call to it at that point where I was like, this makes sense to me. I'm doing this. I'm committed to this. I also, to be quite honest, was a little worried about doing it prior to that because my mother um, has um, mental health issues. And so I was a little worried that even though I knew that I, you know, I'd never been diagnosed with anything like that. um, But I think that there was a little time, if I'm being honest, like there was a little part of me that's like, if I do this psychedelic, right? there's a potential for some kind of, you know, what is it called? Like say some kind of like um, drug induced psychosis or something. And I was like, my brain is how I make money. I don't make money with my hands. I make money with my brain and my heart. And if something happens to me because of this, like, how could I ever forgive myself? Right. And so that was kind of spinning in my head as well. And I think I got to the point at that time, this was uh, early last year where I was like, you know what? I have to get rid of that fear. You know, I know myself now. I'm comfortable with myself now. I trust myself now. Like this is where I'm going. And so I booked it and, um, you know, my partner couldn't come with me um, because of some medication that she was taking. And I was like, okay, well, I've paid for two people, whoever's supposed to come with me. I just trust that it's going to be the right person. And I was talking to my best friend who is the shadow work coach that I was working with at the time. We've since become best friends. And I was telling her about it and she's like, oh, that's easy. I'm coming with you. So I did ayahuasca with my shadow work coach in Peru last October. We had two very different experiences And I can only speak to mine. It was beautiful and bright and transformative and also took me to the depths of the thing that I was the most afraid of, which was not mattering. And so I died. I became this sort of um, 
I, I say in the book, I tell the whole story and I talk about it. Like the, the medicine turned me into in my mind's eye, obviously um, this rat like creature that was sickly and dying and decomposing. And so I felt my body decomposing. And I know this sounds like scary and crazy, but I wasn't afraid. It was just what was. It was like, I had to go through this experience of this is what you've been afraid of the whole time. You're fine. Right. So I, I became the thing that I've been afraid of my whole life, which was um, something that didn't, ex- didn't matter to anyone. Right. And this obviously ties back to my mother and feeling like I didn't matter to her because I kind of didn't. Um, but that was so much more about her than it was about me, but I didn't know that at the time. So, um, so I died in the dream and I say that I was sort of rebirthed or rewired in a way. And I saw visually, I saw, saw here, uh, how impactful my work was going to be in the world. I literally saw the house that my partner and I are going to buy in the future. And I also was sort of floating towards the end of the journey. And this is over the course of eight hours or so. So it's a long experience at night in the middle of the rainforest. um, I saw sort of flying over, hovering over the world. I saw what the future could look like. And it was so beautiful and so harmonious. It was people helping each other and bartering and farming. And we were taking care of the planet and each other. And I was like, if, if I don't see this in my lifetime, that's fine. I'll come back in another lifetime to see it. But now that I know that what, what the medicine was trying to show me was like, that's possible. Like, that's not just a pipe dream. We are going in that direction and you're part of the like light warriors or part of the team that's here to, to move us in that direction. And I was like, I'm in, I'm in. I think it instilled um, an even deeper feeling of purpose and determination and courage and confidence and also ease. Like I just felt so easeful. It all made sense. Um so yeah, it was it was a difficult journey. There were some real dark moments in there, but I never felt afraid. So I'm really grateful to have had that experience. I'm so grateful that you're sharing. I'm so excited to read it in more detail in your book because what you just talked about was so beautiful to me. And even the scary part of you talking about decomposing and feeling all that, in my mind, I'm like, that's the part of you that never felt good enough dying away, sinking away, like- and you're being rebirthed in this way with the confidence and healing and hearing you say that makes me even more interested to explore it. And I've, as you mentioned, like you get this calling and you're like, okay, I'm not going to do that because I am also a child um, where my mom suffers from mental health and addiction issues. So it's always been like, mm-hmm, do I really want to touch it? But over the years, it kind of keeps coming back up similar to what you have talked about. So thank you so much for sharing. Yeah, you're um, welcome. And I got a cl- really clear message during the journey to share this. It's like the plant was very clear with me. And when I say the plant, you know, it's like there's this, this brew, this like mixture of two different um, leaves that are brewed together and you drink this like dark liquid and it's inside your body, right? And it's going to all the places that it needs to go. There's so much wisdom in that medicine. It It gives you exactly what you need nothing more, nothing less. And 
you know, a lot of people prior to the ayahuasca journey had said, you know, I would ask everyone, Hey, you've done ayahuasca. What do I need to know? What advice do you have for me? Everybody said the same thing. Stay curious. Um, stay open. Just trust the process. Like trust when you're in it, don't try to control it. Just trust it and stay curious. And I was like, why does everyone keep telling me this? Like, I want somebody to give me more than that. But the reality was, I understand now why they weren't giving more. Had I heard my own story in full detail from start to finish, I probably would have never done it. But there's a, I think that there's more acceptance of ayahuasca and plant medicine and psychedelics in general now, right? We see this happening in the mental health field. Um, We see research being done, right? We're getting away from the uh, anti-drug sort of propaganda from the, you know, Reagan in the eighties and things like that. And people are really seeing that there's so much positive impact. I know so many people that are microdosing psilocybin uh, at this point, myself included, and it's a game changer. It really is. And this is natural medicine. This is like, this is a gift from the planet, (laughs) from mother earth. So if it sounds crunchy, you know, I used to care about the perception of that. I don't care anymore. It's, it is what it is. And listen, it's helping me. Right. And if it can help other people, it's not for everyone. I get that. That's why there's a menu, right? You can pick anything you want off the menu, just like when you go to a restaurant. So I want to be so mindful of time because you are very busy. Listeners can find Never you. Too busy for you. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, you have your own podcast thrive. I'm going to put the podcast link, the link to your website, link to pre-order your book, all in this episode show notes. I am so excited for part two because I feel like we've really only scratched the surface in this conversation. And it's been such a pleasure to chat with you. I end every episode with the final three questions. And the first question is, if you had a quote or a mantra that you live by, what would that be? So I knew that you were going to ask this. Um, my favorite quote is actually um, from a 13th century Sufi poet, uh, Rumi. And the quote is, never give from the depths of your well, but from your overflow. And the reason why I love that is because um, it's really not about self-care so much as it's about self-love. And I feel like everything related to trauma, healing, and integration comes back to self-love, like knowing that you can get everything that you need inside and you don't need an external person or an external practitioner or anything outside of you to give you everything that you need. Right. And I mean like that on the, on the deepest level, um, you realize that you can give so much more, you can serve from like a very different place Um, Someone else talks about this. I don't know who it is, but they say um, instead of, you know, giving from your cup, you give from the saucer, right? Like the overflow, the the full cup is always for you. And anything that spills out onto the saucer, that's for everyone else. I really like that sort of analogy because if I'm full, if my love tank is full, how much more can I show up? How much better, how much more effective, how much more loving can I show up? Um, in support of someone else. So that's how I just, I love that quote. I've always loved that quote. And I feel like I live that every day. I love that. And actually I heard a similar quote or concept um, from my beloved Harry Styles. He said it in, on a, at a concert saying, fill yourself up first with love and then overflow. You can give to others. Yeah. He stole it from Rumi, but that's okay. Yeah. 
<laughs> you know, hey, more people that hear the message, the better. A hundred percent. Yeah. The second question is, if you could relive any one day, which day would you choose? Any one day in my life. Um, I think it would be the day um, at 24 years old when my mother opted out of my life for good. Um, That was the last time I spoke to her. And I wouldn't relive it to change it. Meaning, I think that it was, I've come to realize that it was a gift that she opted out of my life. Um, I've been able to do so much more because she's not been in it. And I say that actually in a very respectful and loving way. Um, what I would change about it was I would change my understanding that that decision had nothing to do with me. That was about sort of her own unwillingness to do her own trauma work and healing and all of that. And so I think that there's a clear delineation of that. So yeah, I would, I would relive that day because I think that I felt very broken that day. Um, and I am not a broken person. And then the final question is, if you had a theme song that played every time you walked into a room, which song would you choose? Oh, uh, You Gotta Be by Desiree. All right. So I'm going to add that to the For Your Listening Pleasure theme song playlist on Spotify so listeners can hear your theme song along with everyone else's. And Kelly, I'm so excited for part two. We're going to dive in the next time in more about your book. I'll read the book prior and we'll dive into some of the concepts and what you're writing about. And maybe we'll even talk a little about your relationship with your mom and how that really shaped, because I've heard you talk about it on other podcasts. We just didn't have time to really get into it today. Yeah, that's great. I really look forward to that. And I just appreciate you so much for uh, for doing this. And I think that the um, the conversations that you have on this show are just so impactful. And I've also been listening to the playlist. Um, and I think that that's just such a nice accompaniment. I've been really enjoying hearing the other types of music and songs that that either hype people up or make people feel like this is a, a theme song for their life, you know? So thank you for what you're doing. Oh no, thank you. 